Turn in your Bibles to John 14. We're going to be looking at a continual, our topic here, our, our study is this idea of conversations with Jesus. Conversations with Jesus. And today, the topic or the idea that we're working at is the matter of certainty. Certainty. And that's an interesting word. Uh, the, the older I get, the less certain I am about a lot of things. I was a lot more certain when I was young. In fact, I remember a conversation I had uh, years ago with a friend of mine named Rick Carter. And uh, Rick uh, was a guy that uh, was from the town my folks had moved us to, Winchester, Kentucky. It's a little town uh, right outside of Lexington, nice little place. And Rick was a sort of a rock star among uh, some of us because uh, he had graduated from uh, high school and not, well, in Kentucky, that makes anybody a rock star, actually, so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry if you're from Kentucky. Or you're, my family's from Kentucky, you know, so uh, there's just no, uh, no, no branches in the tree. And, uh, but... Uh, Anyway, he was, he was a rock star for more than graduating from high school. He's a handsome guy, blonde-headed, really good-looking guy, and, and, and sort of a leader among um, what you consider some of the Christian uh, kids in the communities. There was a, back in the 70s, I remember, there was a huge revival that swept the country, and a lot of young people came to know Jesus, and uh, he was kind of a leader in that time. And I remember Rick uh, came back uh, after being out of town for a, for a meeting and came back and said that he was going to go to work for a Campus Crusade for Christ. And, of course, that, you know, and we all went, ooh, you know, you're going to work with a big organization. I said, well, Rick, what are you going to be working in? What are you going to be doing? I had some idea of what Campus Crusade did. He said, Cliff, I'm going to be, um, I'm going to actually uh, kind of concentrate here working on the college campuses in Christian apologetics. Now, as a result of the Kentucky educational system, I said to Rick, well, I ain't apologizing for Jesus. Come to find out, I was certain that I knew what the word meant, but I didn't. Uh, apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to defend. So I was thinking, how do I get out of this here? You know? Uh, I thought I knew, uh, certain. You know, it, it, sometimes you think you know what something is, and other times you don't, certain. I, I was thinking, you know, a student come up to me, and they'll say, uh, what rhymes with orange? And I say, no, it doesn't. <laughs> doesn't rhyme with orange? What's the matter with you? I tell them, since that little incident with Rick, I've made sure I know what words mean, <laughs> you know? My students will say to me sometimes as they're reading the Bible, when Paul starts talking about it, I said, you know, he's not actually talking. He's writing. He's asserting. He's declaring. They don't get blessed out of that much. <laughs> Becky was reading C.S. Lewis one evening. And she goes, you know, Cliff, when C.S. Lewis talks about it, I said, you mean rights? She just kept going. Didn't make a bit of difference. Yeah. I learned better. Yeah. But, but this idea about certainty, about words or ideas, you know, sometimes uh, we think we're certain. We think we know. Uh, and we don't. There are some things about the Bible that if you've been reading the Bible long enough, you realize it's not always that easy to be certain about everything. It really isn't. I mean, there, there are difficulties in understanding because this book was written to a culture many, many years ago that we have to sort of take some time to, to figure out. But in this particular conversation with Jesus, I want to read several verses here, and then we'll move into this. And in John chapter 14, beginning at verse 15, we ended last week, and I kind of drugged my feet because I really wanted to spend some time here on this particular matter. And I will tell you that this lesson today is really 
uh, built around two basic ideas, and you'll see them in your, your handout, but I want to kind of give you an overview. For First of all, it's going to be built around the certainty of, well, here we go. See if this works here. Uh, the certainty, if you will, from the text of you will. There's some certainty here when Jesus says something about you will. And there's some certainty as we work through this when he says, I will. That's really kind of the, the, the framework about which I'm working around. That really, really this idea that Jesus says, here's some, here's some certainty, if you will, about some things. And they're really, uh, if you will, operating around these two ideas. So let's look at this first of all. For, uh, there in John, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides in you and will be in you. Now, I want to look at that first thing here. We're going to, we're going to, it's going to take us a little while to work through this. Uh, this idea, the certainty of obedience. You'll notice on your uh, handout that uh, this uh, idea of will, uh, if you will, uh, of obeying is found in 1415, 1421. It should be there right under that, 1423 to 24. Jesus emphatically states, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I said last week, I, I want to kind of dig around here for a while because I think that uh, one of the ideas here that Jesus is attempting to, to deal with us tries to get at the core, one of the core issues that we struggle with. Obedience or, 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 or trusting Jesus enough to do what he says. I wrote in my notes here, and I, you probably understand this, that obedience can be the result of conformity. You know, everybody's acting a certain way and everybody's doing, and your group does this or doesn't do that. And obedience can often be conformity. So I don't think it's right to say when Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. It doesn't mean if you obey me, you love me. Get that now. It doesn't mean... If you obey me, you do it because you love me. There are many times that we, maybe, maybe I speak me, I and you have done things we've obeyed out of conformity. We just said, well, this is unacceptable and I shouldn't do it. And, I, and I'm not going to do it because of the, the group I'm a part of or the place I'm at or the situation I'm in. But you know what? I really want to. <laughs> I want to do it. I desire to do it, but I'm conforming. I told you about that little boy, you know, they've been so bad his dad told him to sit down, and, he's, and he wouldn't. And finally, his dad, in a nonviolent, non-DHS way, <laughs> put his hands on the little boy's shoulder and, and just pressed him down and sat him down. And the little boy's sitting in the chair, and the little boy looked at his dad. He, he said, well, I just want you to know one thing, Dad. I'm sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm still standing up. <laughs> yeah. He conformed. He, he, he did it. You know, because there was enough pressure for him to do it. Jesus is saying, if you love me, you'll obey me. It doesn't mean because you obey me, you love me. That can be simple conformity to religious norms and ideas. Now, another thing I think that obedience can be not only conformity, obedience can be selfishness. Obedience can be selfishness. We don't often talk about this, but I just want to suggest to you, sometimes... People obey because of the selfishness to avoid punishment. It's too painful. 
I want to do it. I'd like to do it. I would do it under other circumstances. But there's too much consequence here involved, and I'm not interested in these consequences. And so we get to the point where we say, well, it's not really that I have any interest in the person who's told me to do what I'm doing or not to do. I am selfishly motivated to say, I don't want the consequences. And uh, we've all done that, haven't we? Where we thought, well, I'd like to do that, and I might do that, but the consequences are just uh, too much. You know, I, I have on my computer, I, I, I write notes to myself so I can remember. I, 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 I've often thought about this. Um, when I was growing up as a kid, uh, we were in Vietnam, or in the, or the Army was. I wasn't, but Army was. And I remember uh, as getting older and getting ready um, to have to go to uh, selective services and enroll, uh, I, I knew guys that went into the Army because they got drafted because the punishment of going to prison for dra- dodging it was too painful. They didn't go because they wanted to. You know, I, I remember I'm watching, we, it was some of y'all not old, some of y'all plenty old enough. Some of y'all in World War II, but, you know. <laughs> um, the, I remember, the, you know, the draft was that there was this lottery thing and, and you got a number. And I remember every year before that, I was, you know, 312, 287, you know, 265. The year I was eligible, 76. <laughs> I knew guys that didn't want to go but did. Because I also knew some guys that volunteered. They were a patriot. They said, I want to go. I desire to go. I, I, see, the difference between doing something because you want to do it and because you're drafted, because the consequences are too much. In church, sometimes I'm afraid that what we try to do with people is we try to get them to conform out of a selfishness, if you will, because I just don't want the consequences. I'm not that interested in really doing what I should do or not in doing what we do. The consequences are just... So I know guys that went into the military, went to Vietnam, not because their heart was in it, not because they wanted to go, but they thought, if I go to, if I go to prison, I won't get a good job. I won't be able to, you know, do the things I want to do. Third way, obedience can be selfish another way. The, 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 the possibility of reward. Maybe, maybe I'm not really that interested in obeying or doing what it, but I'm real interested in the reward. Now, this is where it gets tricky, I think, because I think the Bible does say in places that if you pray to your father in secret, he'll reward you in public. But here's the thing. Here's where it gets a little tricky. It's whenever my obedience or my desire to do the right thing is really the result of a desire to achieve a, a, a reward that I really, really want the gift more than I want the giver. And that's where it becomes troublesome. Where I really want the gift not the giver. So, I, you know, I, I do think there are rewards, if you will, for following Jesus. I think he knows how life works. I think he understands how things operate. He, he's, he's smart. <laughs> and so there are rewards, but here's the problem. When the reward becomes the motivation for the obedience, then if I don't get the reward, do I really care about the rewarder? And I think that's where Christians get tripped up. I don't think there's any question that the Bible teaches that there is reward, there's blessing for following Jesus. But where people get off the rails and where sometimes people flat jump out is whenever they're not getting the blessings that they thought they were supposed to get because the giver isn't enough. The giver. I've talked to people before, you know, that said, you know, I went to church and paid my tithe, blah, 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 and then I got sick. What's that about? 
well, you know, uh, maybe, maybe you were a little too dialed in to the gift than the giver. So, so this idea of, of obedience, it, it's not, not simple. It's certainly not reversible in my judgment. When he says, if you love me, you'll obey me. I don't think it's reversible. I don't think you say, because I just obey you, I love you. I, it reminds me, I'm not this cultured, but my wife is. But I thought about the exchange of this idea of loving and doing. I thought about this exchange in The Fiddler on the Roof. Remember that? Tevier? Whenever uh, he says to his wife, his daughter's getting married, and, and uh, he's now become kind of reflective. And Tevia says to Goldie, do you love me? And she says, do I what? <laughs> and he says, do you love me? And Goldie says, do I love you? With our daughters getting married and this trouble in town, you're upset. You want to go out, go inside, go lie down. It's indigestion. <laughs> Tevia says to Goldie, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? Goldie, you're a fool, Tevia. I know that, he says, I, but do you love me? <laughs> Goldie, do I love you? For 25 years, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given your children, milked the cow, given your children, comma, milked the cow. <laughs> Got to quit reading that fast. Yeah. After 25 years, why talk about love now? The first time I met you was on my wedding day, Tevye. I said, I was scared. Goldie said, I was shy. Tevye said, I was nervous. Goldie said, so was I. This has got a little rhyme. I could sing it, but the baby hitting the doors. But my father said, listen, my father, says, my father said, we'd learn to love each other. So now I'm asking you, Goldie, do you love me? I'm your wife. I know. But do you love me? You know, here's, here's this, this tension between acting a certain way and doing things, whether it would be caring for her husband or taking care of the children. But he's asking the question, I know you've done all these things, but do you love me? You know, Jesus might say, I, Cliff, I know you've done all these things, but are these motivated out of love? Did you do these because conformity, what people think of you, what might happen to your reputation, what might occur in your life. It's too painful. It's too difficult. But down inside, man, I really want to do that. I want to talk about this because I think in a lot of ways, we believe education, knowledge is the key to Christian living. Listen, I, I make my living trying to help people learn. But the key to obedience is not knowledge unless that knowledge guide you and me into a greater understanding of God's love for us. Love is the engine. It's the power. It's the motivation, if you will. Jesus summarizes this. He said, if you love me, you'll obey me. You'll keep my commandments. Now, you know, we talk about love a lot, and I think Jesus is careful here. Let me, let me ask you to look at that. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Love in the New Testament Particularly, the word agape, and I've told you this before, but is a very unusual term. It is not used in classical Greek hardly ever. In Plato and Aristotle, they don't believe the gods can even love. They don't believe they're even capable of loving. Because if you don't love them back, then they have a need. 
If you don't love them back, and the gods in the Greek pantheon have no needs, they can't have needs, they're gods. But Jesus gives some content to this. You know, we talk about love and we should love others. Like, okay, okay, what, what does that look like? We can talk about it. We can define it and say it's agape and it's self-giving. And uh, one of my friends always says that love is fighting for the best for another. I'm fighting for the best for another. And, you know, that can get a little hair, hairy there because if I think I know what's the best for you and you're not convinced, this could be tough. But love is fighting for the best for another. But, but Jesus said it's got content. It's not just a, 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 a feeling. It's not just a thought. It's love is understood as obeying my commandments. My commandments. Now, we've said before that you can boil those down, and two of them is to love God and love your neighbor. But, you know, I, I just want to suggest to you that you might want to in the next few months or however long you're going to do this. I have a friend, we've talked about this and done this, and I have a friend who's actually pulled out of the Gospels all of the commands of Jesus. Interesting, huh? I mean, we know they're sort of subsumed in love God and love your neighbor, but that can get a little loose at times. You know, what I think is loving Daryl might, might not be what, what Dee thinks is loving Daryl. She'd say, boy, that was a harsh thing. I just did it because I love him, Dee. You know, that's where it can get. What if we took some time to say, what did Jesus actually say? What did he say in the imperative voice? That this is a command, you know, where Jesus said, if somebody asks to borrow, give. If, you know, he said, if, if, your, if your neighbor has a need, share. Or, he, you know, he said, he said this if, if, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, in other places, you know, don't do this. Don't, don't do this. It's interesting because when we say, well, love God and love my neighbor, okay, but I think that Jesus gives more content to that than that. I think we ought to be people who at least have some understanding, some awareness. What did Jesus actually command? You know, Jesus said when you do your acts of, of piety or your, you know, your, your, your giving or your fasting, he said, don't, don't make a big deal out of it. When he, when he said... You know, what, what, to honor your mother and your father. and All those kind of matters. I'm just saying, we ought to think about that more clearly. What do you say? Notice because, you know, I've, I've quoted this verse before in class. Because what Jesus said in the Great Commission was, you know, go into all the world and preach the gospel or make disciples of all nations. I got the mark one. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything I've commanded you. That's actually wrong, what I just said. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you to the end of the age. That's wrong. We don't even hear it anymore. Jesus said it this way. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything. I've, not just teach them everything I've commanded teach them to obey. Now, this is the idea that if I'm a person who loves Jesus and I, I want to obey him, it might be, though, that I need some direction and guidance. I always say, I always try to put an application in here at the end of every idea or point because I think that one of my jobs as a teacher is to teach you how to obey, not to agree with me, not to like it, 
Not to say it's wonderful, but to say, how can I now take this into my daily life and do something with it? Teaching people to obey. But the engine or the motivation for obedience is love. I notice this when I work with people at times. Often people aren't obeying something, not because they're willfully resistant. They just don't know about it. This is where education, this is where training, this is where discipleship comes into bear that I didn't know that, I didn't understand it. But once they understand it because their heart of love for Jesus is, they say, I want to do that. How do I do that? Help me, help me learn how to do that. But Jesus is saying here, love is the basis for obedience. I think, again, there's a place for content, there's a place for understanding, there's a place for knowledge. But the key, the key, if you're having trouble with obedience, if I'm having trouble with obedience, it comes down to a love issue. It comes down to this. See, obedience can be reduced to any kind of conformity you want. I can believe in things and have no interest. I, told, I had a student one time, I was teaching him inductive Bible study, and I was really putting him through the paces, man. I was saying, you're going to get all your money's worth here. So you're never getting out of class early. I never let him out. I said, you're going to get, well, we're working and working and working and he's understanding it and knowing how to do it. And he's making all these determinations and like that. And as I'm in class, I am kind of watching what's going on. And uh, I said, hold on, just a second. Hold His name was Chuck Callahan, guy that used to be at the school. And I'm teaching and he's working and he's giving the answers. And I said, Chuck, can I ask you a question? In front of everybody. I knew him well enough I could do this. But I'm the teacher, so I could do it anyway. But, <laughs> you know, I said to Chuck, hey, let me ask you a question. Do you understand all this? What we're doing right here, the, the methodology? Yeah, yeah. Chuck, do you hate it? He goes, yeah, I hate doing this. I said, boy, that is not my goal. <laughs> Here's a guy that knew how to do inductive Bible study, knew every step and could do it and hated it. It was draining the life out of him for some reason. Now, see, that's knowing that's understanding. That's even doing. But guess what's going to happen when this guy gets out of my class? Doesn't have any more inductive assignments. What will he do? Not again. Right? Yeah, the whole idea. So true Christian living here has to do with love. Let me, let me give you a couple of verses. I'm going to wind this down. A couple other verses. You go look at these later. We've overvalued belief. I mean, we've overvalued belief. We've overvalued knowledge to the extent that we've forgotten to talk about love. Knowledge, information, understanding. But we fail to talk about that the real motive and the real motor for obedience is love. Galatians 5, 6. Paul, working through a couple of things when he says this, nothing matters. Circumcision, uncircumcision, the law, not the, he said, none of that matters. He says this, the only thing that matters is faith working through love. Faith working through love. I told you before, uh, this is one of West, John Wesley's great contentions that the reformers, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, wonderfully elevated faith from works that were not made right with God by, faith, by works, were made right with God. But he said they absolutely forgot the priority of love. You can believe something, you can know something, and not have a shred of love about it. Matthew twenty two forty, Galatians five fourteen. Matthew twenty two forty, and Galatians five fourteen. 
All the law and the prophets are fulfilled by love. Now, let me try to bring this down here just a little bit. Um, because there's a, there's a notion or a thought here that I think is throughout Scripture that has to be a place. You know, right now, you could be sitting here thinking, oh, man, i got to be a better lover. i got to love better. Man, i got to get better at this. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying, now, let's try harder to be loving. If it even kills us, right, we'll do that. Yeah, we will. I'm going to love you if it kills me. Um, and it will. I don't think there's anything in the Christian life that, at least for me, that convinces me of my need of God's presence than if we bring this thing down to love. Because I don't have that kind of stuff. I, don't, I can't generate this. And I, and I think it's a false anthropology. That's a big long meaning about human beings. Go, write this down. We'll come back. First John 4.19 says this. We love because he first loved us. The, the Christian life doesn't begin with shame and guilt and, and, and whacking you over the head and saying, look at what Jesus did for you. Couldn't you do something for him? Right? I mean, I, I heard that. Even the idea of God loving me, it was what I call the shaming Jesus that I heard as a kid. Hey, hey, look. Look what I've done for you for crying out loud. Couldn't you do something for me? Well, I guess so. See, we don't love until we know he first loved us. John Wesley said it like this. True Christian living is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you cannot love God until you're convinced He loves you. You can't. I, just quit trying, would you? If down deep in your soul, down deep in your heart, there's a doubt or a wonder or an anxiety that God doesn't love you, that's the problem right there. There it is. We don't, we don't have to diagnose a lot of other things. We have to say, you know what? If I don't know I'm loved, right here it says, we love because he first loved us. This isn't, we love, you know, because I first loved you, so you better get busy. No, we love because now we finally understand he loves us. We have to come back to this. It's the engine. It's what makes the Christian life vibrant. It's what makes living the Christian life an adventure is that I know that I am deeply and seriously loved by someone else. Therefore, I can give what I've experienced. Now, I want to I talk to you about an idea here. I, I don't know if it's... I don't even know what I've got on here anymore. Yeah, there, uh, that's good. I said that. <laughs> that was really good. <laughs> you got that on there, right? Okay. Quit making fun. This is a great a statement by a guy named Thomas Chalmers. It has this notion of love. The heart cannot give up its object by mere resignation. Okay, I'm just not going to do it. Or in being convinced that the object is wrong. There must be an alternative object that is so beautiful and so wonderful that the heart willingly gives up the old object for the new. Think about that. In your own life, I, I, I've told you, you know, when I was in college, um, I, you know, I, I told you a lot, of, you know, there weren't a lot of people after this, you know, there weren't, there weren't a lot of girls wanting to date. Uh, but I did date a few different girls. And I remember one time I was on a date and I went to the restroom. This was before cell phones. It was actually in Lexington, Kentucky, I remember. 
went to the bathroom. I'd gone to the movie, and I thought about another girl I wanted another date with, so I made a phone call. Yeah, it didn't work out well. <laughs> and so I stopped, and then we got kind of chatty. And so I was at about 20 minutes. When I came back, the girl I was with was sitting like this. She'd walked out and seen me on the phone. And she knew I wasn't talking to my mom. <laughs> but when I met Becky, something weird happened. You know, after she asked me to marry her, I said, okay. <laughs> I was going to kind of do, oh, you know, uh, if you're not too busy, uh, you know, Adrian, uh, you know, if it's not too much. I love that scene in Rocky. <laughs> you know, would you maybe want to marry me? Anyway, uh, when I met her, when I met her, something happened. I didn't say to myself, now, you know what? You better not keep talking to girls on a date. Or you know what? You better quit kind of making eye contact at the party going, right? Never occurred to me. Never occurred to me. Because something happened. My affection, my attention, my interest got something so beautiful and so wonderful that it was willing to give up. Other, here, write this down. This is the, Chalmers wrote the name of this book, and, and William Sangster picked it up when he said that. Here's what it is. It's the expulsive power. The expulsive power of a new affection. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. Something gets a hold of your heart and begins to expel lesser other desires and interests. Something gets a hold of your heart and begins to, I call it, it begins to normalize and regulate and correct other lesser affections by this great, overwhelming, over, if you will, overarching affection. It begins to take over your life. This happens to athletes all the time. We, our, our school right now is the final four in the NAIA, Kansas City. And, and uh, we've got guys I've, I've talked to, and they're in the cafeteria line. I'll say, why don't you have a Coke? No. Why not? Cokes aren't illegal. You know, we're, we're, we can drink those. We're, we're Church of God, but we can drink Coke, you know. <laughs> Crying out loud, you know. I want to stay off the Guinness there a little bit, but, it, um, you know, I'm just, that's for the faculty. <laughs> yeah, we need, it's in the faculty lounge. Oh, man, there's several other things. Uh, anyway, um, no, I, 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 I don't want to drink it. Well, why not? Come on, man. You're a, you're a guy. Come on, have a Coke. No, I don't want it. Why? Because it affects the way I play. My bloodstream it's affected by the blood, you know, something about the ass and all that jazz. Here's a guy who has willingly given up drinking soda for a greater affection. It happens every day. There are people whose job becomes so important. The career, climbing the ladder, getting where they think they need to go, having this dream of getting to this one place. Everything else gets regulated around it, doesn't it? Right? It happens sometimes in marriages. A family will want a child so long and then they finally have it and all of a sudden that child becomes the center of gravity for that family. 
And everything comes around that kid. Child. Shouldn't say that. Child. <laughs> See, this happens all the time. There's an expulsive power when a new affection begins to take over. This is the same thing in our life with Jesus. That our hearts cannot give up its object. And its object might be, might be power. The object might be comfort. The object might be self-centeredness. It, no, no telling what it is. Chalmers goes into great detail. It can't just happen by saying, don't do that. Mere resignation. Don't do that. Don't do that. No, no. the heart, as Pascal says, the heart has desires and reasons known only to itself. The heart has desires and reasons known only to itself. Look, I can't tell you why I like Rocky Road ice cream. I don't know, but I do. I, I can't tell you, you know, why I like this and don't like that. It, just, there's desire here. What, what Jesus is saying here is that what regulates and calibrates and puts things back in place the way they ought to is love for me that is born from my love for you. You can't do this. When I read Chalmers' book, and I'd read, uh, uh, if you will, uh, some years ago, uh, a, a lady named Mildred Bang Winecoop, that, or, or William Sangster, that, that said this, that, that the, the key or the understanding of this is when this expulsive power of a new affection takes over, it begins to regulate the life. You know, I, I remember when we were in seminary, and we both were. Becky was working at UK, University of Kentucky, and I was in seminary. And I had not, uh, I'd gone to school about, a, about two weeks, I think it was. And I, and, I, and I was still working at UPS trying to get my 30 days in with the union, and I didn't have a job, really. I mean, I called in every day, can I come to work? Yeah, I come to work. You know, like 1 o'clock in the morning. And I remember... Uh, being there and, and going to school, I spent about two weeks. And one day in that two-week period, I got a letter from the IRS. Uh, and they said, uh, we've looked at your taxes, and we think somebody with a crayon did them but, uh, besides that. But you owe us $3,000, misfiguring. And I, honestly, I mean, I don't know how ironic this is, but that is exactly what I had in the bank. At $3,000, I'd saved just as we left the pastorate I was serving in in Houston. And I thought, oh boy, what are we going to do here? And then two days later, I got a, a letter from Allstate Insurance from Houston, Texas that said, your car has been in a wreck and it was abandoned. It hit another car, caused an accident, and it's been abandoned. What had happened, I'd sold that car before I left, Wayne Bolenbacher, God bless him, who's on staff here. Wayne was a notary. Wayne was my business administrator in Houston. Uh, Wayne, Wayne's first job in the church, we worked together. Wayne had notarized. In Texas back then, you didn't have to walk it down the ditch. You just, you know, I guess good faith or something. And so they're saying, you're responsible. This car is still in your name. There is no way for us to track it any other way, but that's it. You owe us. And I thought, oh my gosh, has somebody been injured? Is there? Luckily, there's no, well, nobody in the car that was hit. And the person just ran off and left it. And I remember two weeks into a four-year degree, <laughs> you know, and the devil said to me, boy, you made the wrong decision, right? 
Becky and I went. We took about a $40,000 cut in pay one day to go to seminary. I wasn't griping. I, I, I knew it. I, I signed up. But, but I remember looking at her and her looking at me like, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I don't know. We're going to find Wayne somewhere. <laughs> We're going to do something. But I remember saying to her, Beck, I know this looks bad. And she wasn't hysterical or anything like that. She, she's been the rock in our family of faith lots more than I have. I tell you, if you I'll pray for you because it's my job, but if you want to get well, ask Becky to pray for you. <laughs> now, I'll do it, you know. I'll pray, pray, pray. Beck, would you come? Yeah. But I remember looking at her and saying, um, I had for so long in my own understanding believed that God had called me to go to, to graduate work because he'd placed in me this desire to teach. I don't know if I could ever do it. I really, I, I remember going up to the chair of the school of ministry when I was in college. I was a junior. What an arrogant, I'm just glad you didn't meet me back then. Some of y'all are saying right now is not that much better, but yeah. <laughs> I remember going up to the chair of the school of ministry and I said, uh, Dr. Trick, his name really was Dr. Trick. I said, I just want you to know something. One of these days I'm going to have your job. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> and so I knew I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I believe that's what God had placed in my heart. I couldn't be, I just couldn't be. I love being a pastor. I did really, I really did, sort of. And <laughs> except for the people. I like, I like teaching. I like hand, I handed out notebooks on Sunday. You know, like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna go through. You're, you're trying to turn this place into a university, I said. And but I looked at Becky and I said this. All I know is this. If I have to crawl on my hands and knees to finish what we started here on this degree, I will not stop. It wasn't because I had to. It wasn't some oppressive thing on me. There was something in me, I think, from God that just said, this cliff is something that you've wanted. This is something you've desired. This is something you've made plans for. This is something I've called you to. And everything else is going to get put in place right now. And I said, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to do all that I can about it. But if I have to crawl on my hands and knees, I'm going to finish what it took me four years in seminary. Not that smart. Could only take nine hours a semester because of the finances. I worked two jobs, one at McDonald's with 16-year-olds. I can't tell you what that was like. <laughs> I remember one day, I had at my home at the church there. I'd, I'd taken about seven or eight people, and we had a Sunday school class, and I had about 80 or 90 people. And it had grown. We had a great time, and I'm sitting there with my little hat on one day. And one of the guys, it was my Sunday school class, who worked for Ashland Oil as a chemical engineer, walks in, and I just went. <laughs> I, I wanted to run. I wanted to. I thought, oh no, if he see, he will never trust anything I ever say. Hi, can I take your order? You know, he was a nice guy. The fact that there was an affection that I had expelled those others. It's the same thing with you. It may have been a career. It may have been a child. It may have been a, a, an opportunity. It may have been a ministry where you're willing to just give it all. Can I ask you to consider this? This is what I ask myself, and maybe it's not appropriate for you, but it is for me. 
that when I'm feeling terribly drawn to something that I know is inconsistent with what Jesus said, I don't ask, why shouldn't I do it? I start saying, what's going on in my heart right now? What's going on in my heart? How's my heart being attracted? How's my heart being drawn apart? How's my heart getting now, now that, 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 that central affection, that, that central expulsive power is now being affected by something? What is it? Am I just tired? Have I, have I just given in to the lie that this will make me happy? It's the expulsive power of a new effect. I, I want to ask you on this outline, I've got it for you. I want you to read the first chapter of this book. You can get it for 99 cents on Kindle, on your Kindle or whatever reader. Oh, this is the other thing I want you to get. Oh, well, it, it's on the outline there. See it? What if by next Saturday, I've got another, you read chapter one in Thomas Chalmers' book, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I'm telling you, it'll rock your understanding of Christian living. This guy is an old Puritan who writes ponderously carefully. And we'll say again, you can't change your behavior. You can't change your affection by simply being convinced it's wrong. Yes. The PDF for free. There you go. So let's get the downloads going. Here we go. One other thing I want to say on this, and we'll just come back next week. On Google. Yeah. Google. Here, here's the idea then. Uh, a guy that I went to a conference with last year, uh, or I went to the, he was there, Floyd McClung, great guy, made this statement on a Twitter feed. I follow him and uh, made this statement. And, and I want you to get this because I think this gets at the heart at it. And that's this. Obedience is not an act of servitude. Obedience is an act of gratitude. If all you're doing is, is obeying because you ought to or you have to or you should or you are convinced that there's some reward of, with it, which you probably might be. Remember we said the problem with obeying from reward is when you quit getting the reward, you're ready to bail because it's the reward, not the rewarder that you want. What if we said, my obedience, I mean, my mind might be convinced. I say, you know, I think I ought to do this. I think I should do this. I think it's the right thing to do. But God, what I want is to do this because I love you and I know it because you love me. And that my obedience is more accurately understood as an act of gratitude than servitude. That, that, that my, act, my, my action here is really me just saying, God, I'm just so grateful for what you've done and how you've been with me that I'm willing to do this. Now, let me finish with this. This is the application for us. I think it's on here. <clears throat> but I want to say again, because I've lived this. And I know it's out there. Even this, as Wesley said, you can't love God until you're convinced He loves you. 
So for some of us, here's what I want to ask you to do. Is begin each day not thinking about your loving God. But God's love to you. Now, we know that. We're going to celebrate this great week where Jesus experienced incredible suffering and difficulty. He did that for you and me. Or, or that, that, that Jesus, next Sunday, will rise from that. He did that. He says he was raised for our justice. He did that for you and me. He did that. But you know what? There's some other ways. I'm really glad that I could say, you know what? This is how I know another. Is, is some of you, some of the people God's put in my life. You know? You, you know what you guys are? You know what the scripture tells you? You are, right? The body of what? Christ. Look at the people around you a second. Scare them just for a second. <laughs> just scare the living daylights out. That's what, that's what I say. You know, when we take communion, we're, oh, like this. look around and go. <laughs> this is communion, not only with God, it's with each other. Tell me, isn't it true that God's love has been manifest to you and expressed to you through some of the people in this room? Or other people in your life? I, when, I, when I get a little discouraged, I, I just start recounting all the wonderful people who know me. I mean, I know them. <laughs> I start right now with the people that I know and the, how they've been so made such a contribution to my life. Sure, Jesus died on the cross. I'm not, I'm not trying to be flippant there. But you know what? He's also given you other people that the Bible says are the body of Christ. And you and I are enfolded in someone. How about, how about be, being thankful that he loved you enough that, that he saw to it that we could have the scriptures that we could read? Yeah. And then ultimately, we're going to get here next week. Not next week, the week after that. His love for us is, I will ask the Father. And he's going to give you another helper. I'm going to ask, that's what he says there, verse 16. So, so for some of us, we got to start our day not thinking about our love to God, okay? Listen to me. Some of us has to start our day thinking about God's love to us. Be specific. Not in some generic, cosmic kind of way. Be specific and say, one of the ways that I know that Jesus Christ loves me. I wrote in my Bible not long ago, because I, you know, I, I know me. You know, I'm wondering, for God loves most everybody, <laughs> I know me. I wrote in the margin of my Bible, John 3, 6, for God so loved the world. It says, Cliff, you're part of the world. <laughs> That's you. So when I read it, I read it as if my name's there. That's not just some hokey, funny, little goofy thing to do. That's to say, you know what? I'd be to be reminded. So some of you read the chapter. That's fine. Some of you, when you get up in the morning, you got to start with saying, with understanding, I am someone who is loved by God. And it is a historical fact you can't change. You can't change the cross. You can't change the resurrection. It's beyond your pay grade. You tell yourself, I am someone who is loved by God. And I mean every day. I mean, I would recommend do this the rest of your life. This doesn't change like one afternoon. The certainty of obedience 
is not oughts and shoulds and betters or fear or threat. If you love me, you will obey me. Now, Jesus, we got some work to do, but it's more that you got some work to do in our lives. For some of us, we've, we've got to let you love us. Some of us, when we think about this, we got all these yeah buts. Yeah, but I've done this. and Yeah, but I've done that. Yeah, but I've, I've failed this way again. Lord Jesus, the work that we need you to do is to help us to not argue with you, to not fight you with our yabbits, to allow you to love us. For some of us, that's the challenge of our life. It won't get fixed today or tomorrow. It will be the constant refrain for us forever, and that's okay. For some of us, we've just been trying too hard. We've thought if we would try harder, this would get straightened out. But we need the power of your Holy Spirit to have that expulsive power of that new affection to take hold. It all comes back to this. We are only able to love you when we know and understand that you've loved us first. So we surrender. We give up. We give in to that truth. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.